I'm glad you're here tonight. I'm glad to get to climb into Exodus 14. Y'all, y'all turn there if you will. And for whatever reason, all day long, I've been just really mindful of and aware of all of the uh, different things going on in people's lives, distractions, frustrations, challenges, uh, just a season where there's a lot going on, getting back into the swing of things school-wise. For some of y'all, your work schedules change this time of year. and it just seems like there's a lot going on. I, I've yet to talk to anybody who says, oh, yeah, it's been a good, light-hearted, relaxing day. How are you? Everyone's just, it's a sort of tense, and there's a lot going on. So uh, I'm going to pray in the direction I'm telling you beforehand so you can be mindful of it and pray with me. I'm going to pray in the direction that God would use Exodus 14 to inform that, to, uh, to not so much cause us to forget all of those things, but to see how the Word applies to all of those things as we study. So let's pray, and then we'll engage the text. Lord, I pray that any time we sing, our hearts are not far from you, and I pray that we are not uttering with our lips that which is far from our hearts. And so, as we just sang, that in the highs and lows, when things are good, when things are bad, uh, if you choose to give, if you choose to take away, um, we, we bless the name of our Lord. And so help us to do that now. Lord, as we look at Exodus 14 tonight, I, again, as I've communicated to those in this room, that I'm just very aware of all the challenges and stresses and distractions, but maybe some of the distractions aren't necessarily distractions, but they're opportunities for us to be faithful with the hectic nature of the culture we live in. With the things that people are carrying, with the burdens that people are bearing, with the concerns that people have, with the hopes that people have, Lord, as we look at Exodus 14, we, we see just a very tender and mighty shepherd in our Lord. And I pray that that would inform our, our circumstances tonight. I pray that as we engage this text that we would be dependent upon the Spirit for understanding in the text. And that we would, we would be dependent upon the Spirit to go and walk in this word. Lord, I'm fearful of just gathering facts and I'm fearful of just obtaining knowledge that puffs up. I I confess that as a fear, and I pray that you would just allow us to engage this text faithfully and then walk in it faithfully so as to put the glory of our great God on display. Lord, tonight is exciting in some points, and then it's very sobering in other points. And just like last week, it's, it's very deep yet very practical. Lord, I'm thankful that all Scripture is breathed out by you, I'm thankful that I don't have to bend over backwards to make it something that it's not. It's exciting because it's breathed out by you. It's wonderful and encouraging because it's breathed out by you. It informs us because it's breathed out by you. It warns us because it's breathed out by you. We indeed see it as profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness that we might be equipped for any good work. Without this, we are unequipped. 
So I pray that tonight is a time of equipping. I pray that it's a time of worship. I pray that it's a time of marveling at the greatness of our God. And I pray that it's a time that is sobering so that we are rightly informed in our circumstances. Thank you for drawing us to Jesus. Thank you for working grace and mercy in our lives when we are totally unable on our own. We love you, Lord. We praise you. We thank you for this time. We thank you for your word. We thank you for Jesus. We thank you for the Holy Spirit. And we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Turn to Exodus 14. We were in 13 last week. And a brief recap before we dive into our text tonight. How do we still... Those are filthy. How do we still keep the Passover? We still keep the Passover. How? Say that again. By putting sin to death. Telling our children. What was the Passover? Let's say there's someone unbelieving in the room that has never heard of this. What is the Passover? Because part of keeping the Passover is knowing what it is and being able to explain it to your kids when they ask. So that's why I'm particularly asking, what's the Passover? When they did what the Lord asks, and what was that particularly? Yes. Yes, exactly. So the Passover lamb is the means by which God sees the blood and he, the wing destroyer, the wrath of God is your, your house is passed over. There's protection in the blood of the lamb. And so when your kids ask you about that later on, you say, well, God delivered us out of Egypt. And so even those sitting here in 2012, 11, Wow, I just jumped on ahead to 2012. In 2011, um, we can say that that's our story. Our story is the story of a people. And God delivered us out of Egypt. And it's only by the blood of the Lamb that we would have redemption. So we do indeed keep the Passover. We, are, uh, we have dependence upon the Passover Lamb. What, what are some other aspects in which we keep the Passover? In the same way they kept it, how do we keep it today? What were some of the guidelines for them that we still follow today? How do they feast? In haste. What does that mean? Say that again. In a hurry. How, how else would you describe it? In feasting in haste. Anticipation of what? Yeah, of the second coming. Yeah, and what would you say? Of getting out of Egypt. We anticipate that God is coming back. It's, we, we read it. That's the whole point. Jesus has returned, but it's not this complete thing yet. We are in our last days now. If you wonder what time we live in, we live in the last days. And we are eagerly anticipating the return of Christ to take us home to our promised land, heaven. So we feast in haste. How else do we feast? Loins girded and sandals on our feet, staff in hand, we're ready to move. We hold loosely to the things of this world because this world's not our home. 
That is much easier said than done. What are some of the challenges in holding loosely to the things of the world? Say that again. Yeah, the fact that we're bombarded every day. There are sales every day. Something's on sale all the time. It's hard to hold, hold loosely to the things of the world. How do we still keep the Feast of Unleavened Bread? Lord's Supper. What was the point of the Feast of Unleavened Bread? There's this thing that's repeated over and over and over. No leaven. So leaven is indicative of what? Sin, malice, contempt, evil. And so uh, the bread of sincerity and truth would be considered what? Unleavened, exactly. And so if we keep the, keep the Feast of Unleavened Bread now, what are we, how do we do that? It's a daily thing for us now, and it exists in Christ. In Christ, how does that work? Yes. Yes. Confession and repentance. It's a daily thing. We don't dabble in sin. We don't wink at sin. We don't allow sin in certain areas, but we'll keep these other areas clean. We aim towards holy living in all we do. It's not a works-based salvation. It's a response and obedience to saying, God tells us to keep the Feast of Unleavened Bread. We do that by knowing a little leaven leavens a whole lump. We're not going to dabble in sin, but we're also not going to dabble in holiness. We are wholeheartedly given to holiness for the glory of our God, and we don't dabble in sin. We put it to death is what the Word says. That's how we keep the Feast of Unleavened Bread. How do we still keep the consecration of the firstborn? That was the third thing last week. Consecration of the firstborn. Do you slaughter a lamb when your firstborn comes into the world? No. When your kittens have new kittens and there's the firstborn of the litter, do you break its neck? Do you sacrifice it? Do you? <laughs> a few of you are like, yeah, that's what we do. That's what we do at our house. That's how we roll. The donkey's neck. Remember that? You either break the donkey's neck or you sacrifice the lamb. Do we still do that? We don't have to. Why? Because of Jesus. So how does Jesus inform how we still keep the consecration of our firstborn? Exactly. We teach our children about Jesus. We tell our children about Jesus. We know that there is no hope for the salvation of our children outside of Jesus. So as we go, as we walk, as we lie down, we speak of Jesus. And we, in, in that manner, we keep the consecration of the firstborn where we know there's no hope outside of Christ. Regular dependence upon God for the salvation and the well-being of your children. You raise them in the way they should go. So in each of these things, the Passover, the Feast of Unleavened Bread, the consecration of the firstborn, the original action represents something deeper and the deeper thing is what we now walk in. So the Passover, Feast of Unleavened Bread, Consecration, we walk in those deeper things now because over time they don't lose importance, they gain importance because they find their true importance in Christ. So these things that we're talking about inform our daily life now as followers of Jesus Christ. They were a shadow of things to come when they originally happened, but now we have this deeper understanding that's pretty sweet that we get to walk in. Exodus 14, verse 1. Then the Lord said to Moses, 
I'll go ahead and read verse 2. Tell the people of Israel to turn back and encamp in front of Pihahoratha between Migdal and the sea in front of Baal Zephon. You shall encamp facing it by the sea. So we're climbing at Exodus 14. Where is Israel right now? What just happened in 13, sort of a big deal. They left Egypt, and they were there for how long? Yeah, over 400 years. So this is a pretty big deal. They got there because of Joseph, and it was all great, good gravy at first. They were in the land of what? Goshen, that's right. And it doesn't kill, the hail doesn't kill livestock in Goshen, and, the, and all the, the plagues don't happen in Goshen because God's putting protection over his people. But then over time, there was a Pharaoh who didn't remember Joseph, and they're now in, in Egypt, and they're getting... Um, driven hard. They're being worked harder. We saw that busy slaves are often distracted slaves and, and, uh, and cannot do what they were originally designed to do by God. And now God brought about Moses, said, Moses, you're going to leave my people out. And they're on their way out. And what do, they, what do they have with them as they're leaving Egypt? What? The bones of Joseph. Say that again? Yeah, like all the gold, silver, and jewels of Egypt. They plundered them verbally. It's fantastic. It's, can we have that? Sure, we plundered you. Ha! And they take it. They probably didn't say ha, but I would have. And so they took it, and they're on the way out of Egypt with all of uh, all the goods, all the riches, as well as the service that Egypt has been used to for four centuries the service that's been provided by the Israelites. So now they're on their way out. They are leaving. It is not just, okay, we'll let you go now. It's, you cannot stay. I'm requiring you to leave. And they're on their way out. And so they're on their way out. They're going. And God essentially says, I'm going to choose your campsite. That's what God says. I'm choosing your campsite. This is where you go. Turn around. You're over here. I want you to turn around. I want you to go right here. And God sets the scene in doing so. Look at verse 3. For Pharaoh will save the people of Israel... They are wandering in the land. The wilderness has shut them in. And I will harden Pharaoh's heart, and he will pursue them. And I will get glory over Pharaoh and all his host. And the Egyptians shall know that I am the Lord. And they did so. This is what the Lord is saying to who? Moses. This is remarkable. Like, don't lose sight of this. This hasn't happened yet. So if you take in the big picture... God knows our deepest needs and thoughts and words before we voice them. And in fact, in this setting, he is relaying to Moses the words that Pharaoh will speak before Pharaoh even has the thought. You see what's happening here? Just see the bigness of your God. He's telling Moses what Pharaoh's going to say before Pharaoh even has the thought that leads to the word. This is, this is big. That makes me want to be in tune with God so that I can get that kind of information too question is, why is God warning his people? What's the point? What does he say? I will get what? Glory. God is saying, I will get glory over Pharaoh and all his hosts, and the Egyptians shall know that I'm the Lord. That's the point in this whole thing. It's not just an exercise to take up time. It's for the glory of the Lord. Look at verse 5. When the king of Egypt was told that the people had fled, the mind of Pharaoh and his servants was changed toward the people. And they said, what is this that we have done? That we have let Israel go from serving us. Here's how I see it. I see it as 
Uh, okay, we're in the middle of the plagues. This is horrible. It's just going from bad to worse. Get them out of here for some relief. But then with the relief that they had came the loss of all of the service that they were getting from Israel. And so someone who's driven by the flesh is going to say, wait a, wait a minute. I'm not okay with this. And so his mind has changed. He says, what have we done? We've let them go from serving us. Like, no one brought me my breakfast this morning. What's happening? You know, it's sort of a whiny, yet he's still powerful in a sense, which we'll see in a second. And so he's saying, let's go after him. So he made ready his chariot and took his army with him and took 600 chosen chariots and all the other chariots of Egypt with officers over all of them. And the Lord hardened the heart of Pharaoh, king of Egypt. And he pursued the people of Israel while the people of Israel were going out defiantly. That's funny. Those defiant Israelites. He told them to leave. The Egyptians pursued them. All Pharaoh's horses and chariots and his horsemen and his army and overtook them encamped at the sea by Pahahiharoth and in front of Baal Zephon. Now, these chariots, this is not a bunch of unskilled rednecks in pickup trucks. Egypt's one of the great world powers of the time. Very powerful. The ESV notes uh, state, Pharaoh was coming out against what appeared to be a wandering and trapped na- nation with his most prestigious and imposing force. This would be like, we've got an unarmed group of people who appear to be meandering around the wilderness and they're, they're kind of closed in. So we're going to go in with our tanks and we're going to really intimidate the heck out of them. And we are going to roll up and it's going to be scary and we want them to know that we mean business. So this is what he's doing with the chariots. It's a strategic move by someone who actually has a very powerful army that's still intact even after the plagues. But that's only for a moment. God will change that. God's people have just been delivered from over 400 years of slavery. And after being delivered from the 400 years of slavery, they were delivered from 10 of the worst plagues the world has seen of which they were delivered from their firstborn being killed, Egypt is still mourning the death of all their firstborn. Like this is all happening pretty quickly. Egypt is still mourning the death of their firstborn. They're now upset that Israel's gone. Israel, for the first time, is saying, we're free. We don't have to make bricks without straw today. We're moving forward. We're in the wilderness. And, and right off the bat... They're tasting freedom for the first time ever. So my question is, what does this section tell us about our freedom in Christ? This is sort of like that moment right after someone says, you know what, I believe in Jesus and I want to I live for Jesus. He, he, he's drawn me. I cannot resist him drawing me. I'm, I, I'm a Christian. I can't. And, and that next day, how, how does this inform our freedom in Christ? The enemy comes after you. Satan is described as a roaring lion. You could think of him as a roaring yet chained lion. Well, I find it to be, it also says in the word, I find it to be a law that when I want to do good, evil lies close at hand. It says Satan's a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. Not just to scare, he wants to devour. Yet God is in perfect control. And so what we can see here at the very least is that your freedom in Christ is not without trial. That's why it's such an affront when you get this lame, watered-down, non-gospel communication of just give your life to Jesus and everything's going to be okay. Your, your money will be 
more abundant. No one's going to be mad at you anymore. Your relationships will flourish, and there won't be any hard times, any trial. Opposition will just fall by the wayside. Your car will run better. You'll be able to jump higher and run faster. I mean, it's just sort of ridiculous. I was watching, you're flipping through the channels, and you come across that healing station, and you're like, really? And so I have to stop and watch for a minute. And I saw a guy actually say, all right, ma'am, hold your legs out. Let me see him. And he said, she has this great back pain because one leg is longer than the other. We can see it right here. And he says, now by the power of Jesus, your pain's going to be gone. You're going to, and just watch, watch this. He's like, oh, look at that. Now this one's longer than this. That's such a caricature of how our life is in Christ. And, and, he, and he says, this one's now longer. Look what, look what God's doing. Now they're even. They're even. In Christ, you, you have no more pain. There's nothing else going to be wrong. I would challenge you to stand up and see if there's any pain in your back. She said, no. <laughs> and I promise you, he said, you think I'm pulling your leg? <laughs> I was like, man, he's like been planning that from this morning. He was like, I'm going to use that line. But he said, you think I'm pulling your leg? Of course, she got up, her back had no pain, and her car was paid for, and she ran faster, jumped higher. The point is, is that um, our freedom in Christ is not without trial. They are tasting freedom for the first time in over 400 years, and almost immediately they look behind them, and here comes an army. Not just any army, but the army who we just plundered verbally, and they're very, very mad at us. It would be like an imposing force coming upon you that's not just an imposing force, but one that is hacked at you, very upset. Now, look at verse 10. This is where it gets crazy. When Pharaoh drew near, the people of Israel lifted up their eyes, and behold, the Egyptians were marching after them. Now, at this point, just at this point, before we read any further, how should the recent past inform their current situation? We just, yeah. Is it not obvious that God's on your side? That, that God's going to take care of you? Is it not like real crazy obvious? What, what else, how else should their recent events inform their current situation? Yeah. It's sort of like the first time. Pharaoh's going to harden his heart. Why did Pharaoh harden his heart? Well, because I made it happen, and I'm God, and I said it, so it's going to happen. And it's happening here again. Now, they should be able to draw upon recent realities to inform their current situation, but let's read on. 10b, verse 12, or through 12. Behold, the Egyptians were marching after them, and they feared greatly. And the people of Israel cried out to the Lord. They said to Moses, that usually works, Is it because there are no graves in Egypt that you have taken us away to die in the wilderness? What have you done to us in bringing us out of Egypt? Is not this what we said to you in Egypt? Leave us alone, that we may serve the Egyptians. It would be better, for it would have been better for us to serve the Egyptians than to die in the wilderness. If this was your people, what would you do? If you were the leader of that people, what would you do? Slap someone. Someone's getting smacked. Seriously. That's their response? Were there no graves in Egypt? You bring us to the wilderness to die. We told you we'd be better off in Egypt. What? 
They're just like the Egyptians. Yeah, the Egyptians were like, what have we done? Now Israel's like, what have we done? That's what the flesh is. The flesh makes you stupid. It really does. Let's look on. What a sorry group. That is a very sorry response. Considering what they just experienced in Egypt, would you say they're being reasonable? No, not at all. How does this inform us in view of our current circumstances? Oh, this is where it gets personal. This is where you go from being, man, they're sorry. And then you're like, oh, I'm sorry too. How does this inform our current circumstances? What do we know about our God? He keeps his promises. Okay. He's cared for you in the past. Yeah, we have the rest of the story, which includes what? Just to just throw something out that might be helpful. Jesus. That works. We'll go with that. Jesus. Yes. What can we learn from Israel about sober-mindedness? Yes. And that reality is usually something that someone else has to tell me when the craziness is going on. That sober-mindedness is not usually my gut reaction like, oh, well, this isn't really as bad as it looks. Usually someone has to tell me, hey, dude, this isn't as bad as it looks. Let's consider the big picture. And so knowing that God has the big picture, knowing that he's sovereign, knowing that he cares for his children, that he's a better shepherd than we could ever be, Um, It seems like God regularly puts us in situations with the imposition of fear. He puts us in situations where there's powerful opposition, and he puts us in situations with hard circumstances so that we, like Israel, would learn to rightly fear Yahweh. He does that so that we'll learn to fear him. It's sort of like saying, hey, don't you think this is scary? It's really not. Fear the Lord. he's, He's much bigger than this thing. It's almost like, Allowing your kids to see something that would make them fearful so that they can know that you're going to take care of them. It's, um, God's very, very loving here. And it's hard to see because sometimes in our hard circumstances, we see God as very distant and aloof and disconnected. But the reality is, is that he is being very loving here and he allows these hard circumstances to happen so that we will fear him, not the circumstance. And he, he makes his power known throughout this whole thing. Let's continue to look at it. Yeah. Yep. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. Yep. Yeah. Yep. Yeah. It's the same cycle of unbelief. Yeah. So, you know, we're hoping that that fear yeah. will drive us to believe. Yeah. 
It's interesting because there's a certain comfort in the flesh of your circumstances, knowing at least the extent of your circumstances. It's like, I'm okay with Egypt. As long as I know I'm going to get some food, I'll still put up with this as long as I know that this is going to be there. And so rather than fixing our eyes on the Lord and, and walking in faith, we're really wanting to walk by sight, which can be stated as unbelief, which is I'm okay with, I, I'm okay with this undesirable circumstance as long as I know some of the parameters, as long as I don't have to totally put my faith in the Lord. Because putting the faith in the Lord means i got to let go of something. And a lot of us are absolute control freaks. There are some control freaks sitting in this room right now who need to learn how to let go of some things and trust the Lord. I'm intentionally looking at the ceiling so as to not make eye contact with anybody. If Israel rightly feared Yahweh, how would they have responded with the enclosing army? I mean, it would have been obvious. It would have been a, the Lord is for us. Who can be against us? That's what would have been there. Unbelief is unreasonable. Unbelief is unreasonable. A.W. Pink states, the great difference between faith and unbelief is that one brings in God and the other is shutting God out. In a sense, in your unbelief, you're saying, I, I'll still control. I can, I can work to control this. I can sure try, as opposed to allowing the Lord to do what the Lord does. Pink goes on to say, this is a really important point, where faith is not in exercise, the promises of God bring no comfort and afford no state of the heart. Well, you're not exercising faith. God's promises don't really matter to you at that point. God's promises really matter to you when you're being faithful. But when you're not being faithful, God's promises, they'll provide no relief and support and understanding and direction and guidance and encouragement, which is what you need in those instances. What promises could Israel have drawn upon in proper faith? Israel has promises from God they could have drawn upon in proper faith, but they didn't. What, what are they? Turn back to Genesis 12. Genesis 12, verse 2. And I will make you a great nation, and I will bless you and make your name great so that you will be a blessing. As they're standing in the wilderness free for five minutes and watching the army come upon them, they could have said, you know what? He said he's going to make us a great nation and that we're going to be a blessing. We haven't gotten to be a blessing to much of anything yet. We've been, we, we just left. So, and I don't know if this is great or not, but I believe what the Lord says. Turn over to Exodus 3. They could have drawn upon this promise, 3 verse 12, in proper faith. He said, I will be with you, and this shall be the sign for you that I have sent you. When you have brought the people out of Egypt, you shall serve God on this mountain. Have they served God on any mountain yet? Nope. They could have drawn upon those promises of God and walked in proper faith. But because they weren't exercising their faith... The promises didn't mean very much to them. So my question to you is, what promises can you draw on today as an expression of proper faith in Christ? I will never leave you. I will never forsake you. 
Yep, he who began a work is faithful to complete that work. He who is in you is greater than he who is in the world. What are some other promises you can draw on in proper faith? Yes, he works all things for the good of those who love him. This kingdom good that's a bigger picture than we can usually see, so we have to walk in faith. Yeah, you draw, you, when you're in the midst of temptation, just like Jesus when he was tempted in the wilderness, he called, he cited the, the uh, scriptures, cited what God had said. Turn over to Philippians 4.19. Yeah. Yeah. Yes, we have a fear of dying, but you know, them not seeing Christ or having the whole story uh-huh. of him overcoming death. Yeah. And you know, death has to seen on us. Yep. You know, that is I mean, we 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 just don't know what that feels like to to really fear, you know, dying and, okay. Yeah. 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 Well, what what's the worst that can happen to you, really? You die, and for and go to heaven. Yeah. That, and so it's easy to say that, but when someone has a gun to you, it's not easy to say, "What are you going to do? Kill me?" I mean, you know, there's a sobriety that we need to have without being flippant, and so that is a reality. The worst that could happen is death, and it would be better to die in faith than to live in unbelief. That's sort of a main point here. Philippians 4.19 says, And my God will supply every need of yours according to the riches, to his riches, in glory in Christ Jesus. To our God and Father be glory forever and ever. Amen. That is a promise we can draw on. Turn over to 1 Corinthians 10, verse 13. No temptation has overtaken you that is not common to man. That is such a humbling and sobering verse. You think you're being tempted beyond anything anyone's ever experienced? Do you think that the temptation you're experiencing is, be, is just over the top? It probably feels that way, but luckily my emotions don't define my reality. And so here what we see is that God very gently, yet pointedly, humbles us, levels the playing field, sobers us up and says, there is no temptation that has overtaken you that is not common to man. This thing you're experiencing, which seems crazy and over the top, is common. And God is faithful. He will not let you be tempted beyond your ability. But with the temptation, he will also provide the way of escape that you may be able to endure it. You take that promise at value, that means that anytime you give into sin, you had the ability in Christ to overcome it. Sobering. That informs us. That helps us to, when that sin comes along and we are tempted, lured by and enticed by our own evil desire, as it says, we have the goods in Christ to overcome the temptation. God is faithful is the point here. Turn over to Romans 8. talking about promises that we can cling to as an exercise of proper faith. Romans 8, verse 31. 
What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son but gave him up for us all, how will he not also, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. Who is to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died, and more than that, who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who is indeed interceding for us. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation, distress, or persecution, or famine, or nakedness, or danger, or the sword? Or as it is written, for your sake we are being killed all day long. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. No, in all these things we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am sure that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. If you're needing some encouragement to memorize scripture, to store something in your heart that will give you encouragement when you are tempted to give way to the solicitations of the flesh without regard to eternal consequences, Go to pieces of scripture like this. This is hard. I'm tempted to not believe God. I'm tempted to take things into my own hands. I'm tempted to try to do all I can to gain power and control over this situation as opposed to walking in faith and trusting your Lord. Turn back to Exodus. Fourteen, thirteen. And Moses said to the people, Fear not, stand firm, and see the salvation of the Lord, which he will work for you today. For the Egyptians whom you see today, you shall never see again. The Lord will fight for you, and you have only to be silent. Really. Stand there and be quiet. Be still. Yes, that's a big army, isn't it? I almost see Moses like... Those guys behind me, they're pretty scary, right? Be still. Be quiet. Sometimes God fights through us. Sometimes God fights for us. Later when we consider Joshua and some of those other accounts, he fights through us. Here he's fighting for the people. And what we're seeing is there's a standard operating procedure for many sinners to complain to the Lord via God's appointed leadership. It's one of the perks so ultimately, Israel cries out to God in the wrong way. They're complain, complaint, despair, as opposed to faith and hope. And Moses responds with some clear direction. That's what's happening here. That's a sign of good leadership. Respond with clear direction. Fear not. His aim is to quiet their hearts and sober them up a bit. Fear not is a recurring command in the scriptures because it's a recurring command. Uh, Temptation for us to fall into wrong fear, not fearing the Lord, but fearing the circumstance, fearing the opposition, fearing the unknown. In Isaiah 26, 3, it says, You keep him in perfect peace whose mind is stayed on you because he trusts in you. What that's a picture of is not us saying, Ooh, ooh, hard circumstance, run to God, run to God, hard circumstance, run to God, but we're stayed on God. Hard circumstance comes along, we're stayed on God. Hard circumstance passes, we're stayed on God. This is the kind of thing that helps us from being reactive in all of our Christian life. Ooh, this is bad, I better go to God. Things are cool, so we probably don't even need to pray today. That's an imbalance. This is for those who are stayed on God. 
And what we see here is because you trust in him, you are stayed on him. To fear is to trust God. To fear God is to trust God. So the very encouragement to not fear the uncertainty of circumstances is also an encouragement to rightly place your faith in God. Don't fear these circumstances. Put your faith in God. They go hand in hand. Consider what this means for Israel. You're closed in on all sides. Climb into the context. Import your senses. If you're an Israelite, you see this army, you see the wilderness, you see the water, and you got, you got your hands are too full of silver and gold that belongs to them. You know, you're not even armed. Climb into this context. You are closed in on all sides. There is no evident route for escape. The strongest army and the world is coming toward you with their best. You cannot see your means out. But do you trust God? Can you have perfect peace when everything around you is far from being perfectly peaceful? That's what he's calling us to. Have peace when it's not necessarily peaceful because you stayed on me and you can trust me. Not only fear not, but stand firm. Many of us stink at this. Stand still. Be still. Stop it. Quit. Stop. That's what this is. A lot of us really stink at this. We're full of anxiety because we don't know how to fear not and stand still. So because of our anxiety, we'd prefer to run around doing everything we can, largely ignoring God, driven by the, fear, the very fear that we should put to death, far from heeding the call to be still and know that I am God. When craziness comes upon your life, what's your reaction? Is it go, 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 get it right, get it right, get it right? Or can we stand firm, be still, shut your mouth, and know that God is God? Anxiety is a form of pride. That's what Philippians says. Be anxious about nothing, but in everything by prayer and supplication, let your request be made known to God. It's a picture of humbling yourself before God. You're not, you have anxiety because you don't humble yourself before God. I used to think anxiety was a badge of, look, I really care about what I'm endeavoring upon. But anxiety is a form of pride because you do not know how to humble yourself before God. So a lot of us are not very good at fearing not and standing firm, standing still, being quiet. One commentator said it like this. Unbelief creates or magnifies difficulties. So faith gives you a sober mind in the difficulties. Unbelief makes it worse than it even really is. And then unbelief sets us about removing them by our own bustling and our own fruitless action, which in reality does but raise a dust around us, which prevents us from seeing God's salvation. He says, stand firm and see the foundation of the Lord. Faith, on the contrary, raises the soul above the difficulty, straight to God himself, and enables one to stand still. Like Isaiah 26, 3 says, you keep him in perfect peace whose mind is stayed on you because he trusts in you. So up until this point, it might be easy for us to say, we know the story, right? We know what's going to happen. It might be easy for us to say, uh, it's obvious the water's going to part, but what would your expectation be at that time? Look at verse 15. Then the Lord said to Moses, why do you cry to me? And that's just one of the hard things about leadership. They're all whining to Moses about God, and then God says, Moses, why are you, why are you complaining? You, I, I, I mean, it's funny. It's pretty funny. You can almost see Moses going, I can't win for losing. This is hard. But he stands firm, and he, and he leads well. And it says in verse 15, 
uh, the Lord said to Moses, why do you cry to me? Tell the people of Israel to go forward. Lift up your staff and stretch out your hand over the sea and divide it that the people of Israel may go through the sea on dry ground. And I will harden the hearts of the Egyptians so that they will go in after them. And I will get glory over Pharaoh and all of his host, this, that's war, war uh, speech there, all of his host, his chariots and his horsemen. And the Egyptians shall know that I am the Lord when I have gotten glory over Pharaoh, his chariots and his horsemen. Now, God in a sense rebukes Moses. There's an accountability. He says, remember that cool staff I hooked you up with? Put it up over your head and part the waters. We are so civilized. Who would have done it? Really? Who would have said, that, that's, that's what God's calling them to? We're so civilized when it comes to the way we look, the way, the way people view us. And imagine Moses. He's got a million people that are really well-ordered, enough to the point where he can say, Stand still, be firm, and, and see the salvation of the Lord. And they're going to do it. And he's got an, uh, an army coming on strong from this side. Wilderness, water, what am I going to do? And Moses, the great leader who everyone's looking to. Okay, I'll do it. Would you do it? Would you laugh at God? If, if God was telling you, hey, take that and just raise it up over your head, and you're going to part those waters and walk right through, would you be like, ha, hook us up with an ark or a boat, something. This is bad. Strike them down. Do something. But you want me to raise this up over my head and just, just it's going to part the waters? We're so civilized. If you could see the other side, you would. It's interesting. As I've read through this, I really think that it was a, I mean, first of all, you're walking into parted waters. Water, water. And because they walk by faith, I believe that it was probably hold this up, and as the waters go, you got one step. Water moves, you got another step. I mean, if they're surrounded by water as they're walking, there is the possibility, oh, we might all drown. Hebrews says they did it by faith. I've thought about it a lot today. I, I mean, I'm, I'm picturing Ooh, look at that. And just people bolting. It's a million people. They would have trampled each other to death. People would have died. This was an orderly movement through parted water, one step at a time, by what the writer of Hebrews tells us is by faith. So they must not have been able to see the whole thing. They must have taken it a step at a time and walked by faith, as opposed to, oh, there's a way out. Let's bolt. Trusting the Lord, standing firm, seeing their salvation. God will sometimes call us to do things that seem foolish, yet he does it for the sake of his glory. So be careful not to scoff at the king of kings. Be careful not to scoff at the king of kings. What are some things that God calls us to today that seem foolish to the outsider? Pray. Who are you praying to? You talking to yourself? You think that goes past the ceiling? To the outsider, it looks foolish. But what do we know about prayer? What's the promise attached to it? The prayer of a righteous man has what? Powerful and effective. Great powers, it's working. It availeth much. That looks foolish from the outside. It looks like you're talking to yourself. No one's listening to you. It looks foolish. What are some other things we're called to that look foolish? Purity. And is there any promises attached to that? 
Staying married. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. You care about seeing God? Yeah, there's a promise attached to it. That's, this is so cool. We could go down this whole thing and see, this looks crazy. You are, you're giving up something that could be wonderful and fun and great and give way to the solicitation of the flesh without regard to eternal matters, just like Esau did. Red stew comes in many, many forms. Yet, we see that the way of escape is provided by God, and every time he provides that way, there's promises attached to it that we can draw on if we know the Bible. What are some other things that look foolish? Turning the other cheek. Seriously, someone punches me in the face. You want that side too? What's the promise attached to it? Blessed are the peacemakers. There's blessing in making peace. It's pretty sweet. There's a lot of things that look foolish. We're called to love our enemies, bless those who persecute us, turn the other cheek, give away things that might be meaningful to you, uh, seek to show honor to others, like outdo one another in showing honor. That, that doesn't make sense. We should care about our own honor more. But there's promises attached to all of it. We're going to finish this chapter next week. There's no way I'm going to rush through the second half of Exodus 14. So, I just threw off our curriculum for the fall. I have a schedule that's going to be messed up now. But that's okay. Let's read just a few more verses and then we'll pray. Look at verse 19. Then the angel of God who was going before the host of Israel moved and went behind them, and the pillar of cloud moved from before them and stood behind them, coming between the host of Egypt and the host of Israel. And there was the cloud and the darkness, and it lit up the night without one coming near the other all night. Um, It's an appropriate place to close because I believe the angel of the Lord is Jesus. Uh, There's probably different opinions even within this room on that. But in Scripture, a lot of times when you see an angel, you see angel's messenger. And when it says the angel, um, I believe that this was the same angel who probably had lunch with Abraham in his tent. And um, I believe it's the Shekinah glory. I mean, the picture here that we're closing with this evening is Jesus is lighting the way and protecting your rear. That's what he does with you. He lights the way, he protects your rear. He doesn't call you to something he's not going to help you in and deliver you in and, and encourage you in. So he's lighting the way, and he's protecting your rear. That's what happens here. That's, that's what we're seeing with the people of Israel. It's the way it's always been. We'll engage the last half of this chapter next week. Let's pray. Lord, we're thankful for your word. Lord, I'm thankful that um, really I can't imagine what it's like to go through the hardest trials in life without Jesus. And when I see people try to do it, it breaks my heart. Lord, as we're talking tonight, I'm thinking about um, those who have recently lost loved ones. That's a very hard trial. I'm thinking about those in the state we live in whose homes have been destroyed by fire. It's a hard trial. I think about wars being fought because of injustices all over the globe and the hard trials that are attached. I think of people who have lost children. I think of marriages that are very hard every day. I think of unbelief in our loved ones that breaks our hearts. I think of family members who turn their back on us because of our faith. 
I think of persecution that we see in those we love because they live in a culture that does not agree with Jesus. I see financial ruin in many lives. I see hardship. And I can't imagine being in those circumstances hopelessly. I thank you for Jesus. I thank you that we are not uninformed in our circumstances. I thank you that we are not hopeless in our circumstances. I thank you that we are not left to our own devices in our circumstances. I thank you that we don't just have to wing it and hope for the best, but that we can put our faith in a God who is the King of kings, Lord of lords, seated on his throne and very carefully and gently and lovingly tending his flock. I'm thankful that when we draw near to you in prayer, you give us this encouragement that do you hear us? I'm thankful that we do not live and move and breathe and walk in vain. But that in Christ, we have the purpose of putting your glory on display in everything we do. Every conversation, every situation, circumstance, reaction, hard time, deep valley, high mountaintop experience, all of it is informed by Jesus. Let us walk in an informed manner, aiming to put the glory of our great God on display. Help us not to be unbelieving and unreasonable and misrepresent our God when things happen like this. Lord, challenge us in our faith. Grow us in our faith. Encourage us in our faith. Comfort us in our faith. We believe. Help our unbelief. We love you and we thank you for Jesus. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.